morning. We're going to be in Jonah chapter 4. If you have your Bible, you can turn there with me. Uh, If you're a guest with us, we've been going through the book of Jonah the last three weeks, and this morning we're going to finish our short series in the book of Jonah. Um, For the last two weeks, I was able to take a break from preaching, uh, and it's it's been great to be preached Two, to sit in the seat and to receive God's word, to sit under God's word uh, through the ministry of another preacher, namely John Tavius. And I just want to ask you, church, would you help me express uh, just thankfulness to, to John Tavius for, for faithfully opening up and preaching God's word to his brother. We're, we're thankful for the ministry of the word uh, through your lips, and uh, we just want to say thank you to God. Um, I was ministered to. Uh, somebody said recently that we need to get John Tavius out of the bullpen and in the regular rotation. And I agree with that. I just hope I don't get sent to the minor leagues. So I'm glad to be able to take the mound this morning and uh, as we complete the, this series in the book of Jonah. So over the past three weeks, um, we have, uh, we've been looking at this, this short prophetic book, which is really in some sense a biography of the life of Jonah. Um, And in week one, we looked at Jonah's rebellion, how Jonah uh, ran from God, and we considered what running from God is and why it's always foolish to try to do so. Then then, uh, in week two, we looked at Jonah's repentance, and we unpacked, John Tavius helped us to unpack what are the key marks of genuine repentance. And then last week, we looked at Jonah's return. He, He returns back. Uh, to the Lord and to the calling that God had, had given Jonah. And, and we saw the revival that came about as a result of Jonah's preaching through powerful, the, 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 the power of God's message as Jonah preaches God's word. And this morning we'll be looking uh, at chapter 4 and we'll discover that this Jonah character, uh, he, he's quite a complicated dude. Uh, he's a prophet who rebelled, a, a rebel who then repented and returned to God, a, a, a a prophetic preacher through whom the Lord brought revival to the city of Nineveh, and now we'll discover that although Jonah is a revival preacher, he's a man who still has a lot of learning and growing yet to do. Uh, This morning, I'd like us to focus our attention on the topic of Jonah's racism. Thanks, Jason. So um, if you have your Bible, turn with me to Jonah chapter 4, but we're actually, for context, going to pick up In Jonah chapter 3 and verse 6, let's read it together. God's word says this, The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, Taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, 
And he was very angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you were a gracious and merciful, a God gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. We'll pause here for now. This is the word of the Lord. So I want us to explore Jonah's racism, our theme for this morning, in three parts. First, we'll notice uh, Jonah's disgust for Nineveh. Then secondly, we'll notice Jonah's uh, distance from Nineveh. And then thirdly, we'll consider uh, his discipleship concerning Nineveh. So as we began this series, we began by noticing that despite God's clear command to Jonah to go to Nineveh and to proclaim uh, his word to the Ninevites, that, that the prophet went in exactly the opposite direction, that he fled toward Tarshish by way of a ship at Joppa. And we asked the question then, why did Jonah flee? And it's not until chapter four that we get uh, the full answer. When Jonah finally returns from, re- from rebelling against the Lord, he, he goes and he fulfills his task that the Lord had given him, and he proclaims to the Ninevite, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. It, it was a message that warned the Assyrians of the impending judgment of God. But as a warning, the message was also laced with this implicit thread of hope that if they hear the message and if they heed the message by turning from their sins and turning to God, that he might perhaps relent of his anger. And in fact, the king of Nineveh, when he hears the message that Jonah preaches, he responds by putting on sackcloth and calling for a citywide fast. He states to the whole city, let everyone turn from his evil ways and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God might turn and relent from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. And indeed, when God sees the response of the Ninevites, when he sees the king of Nineveh lead the people to repent in sackcloth and ashes and fasting, when God sees their repentance, he relents of his anger and his judgment, and the entire city is spared by turning from their sins and turning to God. This is one of the greatest revivals in human history. The Lord used this man Jonah to spare an entire city, which verse 10 tells us was over 120,000 people. It was a large city in its time. And you would think that Jonah would be excited about this. You would think that Jonah would be enthralled with the fact that God chose him, of all people on the earth, God chose Jonah to bring about revival in Nineveh. But instead of being excited about this, Jonah is angry at God for showing the Ninevites kindness. Jonah was disgusted with the Lord's decision to relent of his anger toward the Ninevites. Let's consider for a minute Jonah's disgust for Nineveh. The text says it, and that's referring to God's relenting, God's God's mercy. It displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was angry. And he prayed to God, Lord, this is exactly what I knew you would do. And now we get our answer for why Jonah ran in the first place. He ran because he did not want God to show mercy to Nineveh. The very thing that he didn't want to happen, happened. And when it does happen, Jonah says to God, 
I knew you'd do this. I knew you'd show them mercy. I knew you would be patient with them. Now, I want you to notice this. These words of complaint, this, these emotions of anger toward God's mercy for others is coming out of a man who just preached a sermon that led to mass revival. These words are coming out of a man who bore the title of prophet. These words are coming out of a man who just got back from a mission trip. Isn't it interesting that although Jonah went and declared God's message, he could act as God's courier, but he lacked God's compassion. If I was John Tavius, I'd say I'm going to pitch a tent right here and camp out for a minute. There is a sense in which Jonah fulfilled the task that God gave him. He went to Nineveh. He said what God would have him say. His actions on the outside had the appearance of righteousness and obedience, but his attitude was not in accordance with his actions. See, what I'm trying to say is that, that Jonah went through the motions of doing what God said, but he lacked a heart of love as he did it. His heart was filled with contempt toward these Assyrians. Though Jonah went to Nineveh, he went with a posture of pride. He went with, with hate in his heart. He was checking the box of obedience. He was doing the God thing, but he was checked out completely when it came to actually caring about the well-being of those he allegedly went to serve. And if this can be true of a prophet of God, might it be true of us as well? Might that possibility be there for us? That it is, it is possible for us to have a religious uh, exterior, to have a religious appearance, but a racist heart? To even go on mission trips, be it across town or across the ocean, and go not out of a sense of genuine love and compassion for the people we go to serve, but for some self-serving reason? It's possible to, to go and even be used by God. And still harbor disgust in your heart toward the very people God is using you to serve. And church here, I, I want us to hear this. God cares about more than our actions. He cares about our attitude. He cares about the inner man, not just the appearance of things. It's not enough for us to go through the motions. The Lord told, the prophet, uh, told, told us through the prophet Samuel, man looks at the outward appearance, but where does the Lord look? The Lord looks at the heart. And isn't this exactly what Jesus criticized the Pharisees of when he, when he said, woe to you scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you're like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and uncleanliness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and Lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. Jonah went on his short term mission trip, but he went as a man who estimated himself better than the people God had called him to serve. And left up to him, Jonah would have shut the kingdom of heaven in the Ninevites' faces. See, Jonah was ethnocentric. Jonah believed that the Israelites were better than and more deserving than the Assyrians. He had prejudice in his heart. I wonder if any of us might also struggle with Jonah's superiority syndrome. 
Are there any groups of people toward whom you feel disgust? If you were going to be honest in the heart of your hearts, are, are there any categories of people that you've put in an other category? Any neighborhoods in our city you find disgusting? Any people you think are, you are implicitly better than or morally superior to? The truth is we're all susceptible to this. It's easy to judge Jonah, but we're more likely than we want to admit. So maybe you're thinking to yourself, I don't feel disgust in my heart towards anyone. I, I don't think I'm better than anybody. Might I suggest to you that you replace Nineveh with the name of the political party you most disagree with? It seems to me that this is one area where we very naturally feel disgust in our heart rather quickly. Do you have disdain toward others when it comes to discussing and debating politics? Does an air of superiority ever rise up around those of the other party? Maybe for you, your disgust is not driven by politics or even ethnicity. Maybe for you, it's driven more by socioeconomics. Perhaps you tend to look down on the poor. You assume every poor person is in the place of poverty they're in because of poor choices and laziness. Maybe for others of you, you look down on the rich and assume that every rich person is selfish, stingy, and worldly. Perhaps you feel disgust towards the LGBTQ community, thinking you're implicitly better because your sexual struggles look different than theirs. Or maybe you look down on anyone wearing a turban. Perhaps you look down, on, down your nose at self-identifying evangelicals. Certainly you're better than them. See, yours might be more subtle, less obvious than Jonah's prejudice, but deep down, it's there. And that ever so smug arrogance of thinking you're just a little bit smarter, just a little bit better. I want you to notice that Jonah's disgust didn't keep him from going through the rhythms and mechanics of his religion. It didn't keep him from going to Nineveh. He still went to Nineveh. He went, but he did not go in love, longing to see their redemption. He went out of duty to check the box of obedience. He did not go in the humility and compassion of seeing himself as their equal. He did not identify with them. He stood over them as if he were better than them. And there's a thick irony here, right? We've just been studying this man. We know his track record. This is a man who has just come back from outright defiance to God's command. But I'm getting ahead of myself. So let's pick up in verse 4. Verse 4 says, Jonah went out of the city and, he, and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad of the plant, because of the plant. I want us to consider, secondly, not only Jonah's disgust for Nineveh, but his distance now from Nineveh. Jonah finishes his duties of proclaiming God's message to Nineveh, and the text says that he went east of the city and set up shop there. The text says he made a booth. This is language for a tent or a shelter. Jonah moves to the suburbs. He goes to east Nineveh. 
And while he's there, life for him gets a little bit better. A plant grows up and provides shade over his bed. He, he finds himself in a much more comfortable situation than his time actually in the city of Nineveh. Jonah's got himself an Arnold Palmer, a lawn chair, and a good podcast, and he is chilling. See, he has proximately removed himself from the scandals of the city. East of Nineveh, he doesn't have to deal with the smells and the sounds of those pagan people's way of life. His deed for God is done. He's taken his Instagram pic. He's got his likes. He is feeling good about himself. And now he's out. And I want to particularly draw your attention to the end of verse 5, where it tells us, Jonah went out of the city till he should see what would become of the city. There's a coldness in the way that this reads. It's clear that Jonah is in no way moved with compassion for the Ninevites. He has preached at them, and now he'll wait and watch to see what God does with them. Abraham, on the other hand, he interceded for the people of Sodom. He prayed for God to spare them. But with Jonah, there is no prayer for Nineveh. He merely watches to see what will happen to the city like watching an episode of CSI. Notice with me how the narrator frames it. Jonah went and watched to see what would become of the city. See, from a distance, he could depersonalize the situation. It was not women and children. It was the city. It was not people made in the image of God. It was that awful place, Nineveh, the city. See, distance allows us to depersonalize problems. From a distance, we can, we can talk about things like welfare reform and immigration reform in ways detached from the reality that on the other side of those laws are people, single moms and fathers desperate to provide for their families. Right? We can talk about abortion as an issue of women's reproductive rights because we distance ourselves from the reality that we too were at one time a fetus. Now, I'm not trying to get overly political here. That's not my goal this morning. I'm simply saying that some of us might be too detached from the problems around us. We might be like Jonah, sheltered away from the problems of the big bad city. When was the last time you drew near enough to the problems of our society to learn names? If our opinions, our convictions, our voting record are removed from empathy and compassion for real people, we might be doing our politics wrong. In fact, we might be doing life wrong. Are you too distanced from the plight and the problems of real people in our country? Now, this may lead us to vote different ways, but we need to be engaged enough that we know names, that we're not so far removed that we're detached emotionally and empathetically. See, Jonah's new suburban lifestyle allowed him to distantly and coldly observe rather than proactively participate. He insulated himself from the problems and the pain. And we run the same danger. It is possible for us to live this life where we go to work, come home, pull in our garage, go inside, shut the shutters, get on Facebook, where everyone is projecting a false reality of their perfect life and quickly lose sight of the fact that people all around us are hurting and in need of the hope and peace that Jesus brings. Now, I'm not saying it's wrong to live in the suburbs. I'm not saying it's wrong to get on Facebook. What I'm saying is we need to guard ourselves from falling prey to this kind of lifestyle that is totally removed from people and problems. 
Don't get caught up in keeping, with, keeping up with the Joneses and focusing life only on personal comforts, losing sight of the reality that there are people right next door and down the street and across the block that need the love of Jesus. Jonah's focus was only on himself. Did you catch what the text says? He was exceedingly glad because of the plant. Glad about a plant, but unconcerned about thousands of people. He wanted the good life for himself, and that's all that mattered to him. And as a side note, I would just like to point out here that it's, it, it's possible for us to be experiencing temporary pleasure and ease, and that is no indication that you are in the middle of the Lord's will. There is this idea out there that if things are going well, God is blessing you and you're in the good seat. Jonah was in a season of comfort. He was not walking with the Lord. How do we know if we're in the Lord's will? We don't look to our circumstances, but we rather look to a circumcised heart. Jesus said that the great commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Is to love your neighbor as yourself. Micah 6.8 puts it this way. Who has told you, O man, what is good? And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly? With your God. You're in the Lord's will if you have a humble heart and one that gushes for justice and loving kindness. Do you delight in the mercy of God expressed not only toward yourself, but toward others? A life that is focused only on personal comforts and pleasures is not the kind of life that pleases God. Jonah's heart, see, was, it was not only distant from the Ninevites, it was distant from the Lord. Last week, John Tavius teased out for us this play on words that the narrator gives us when Jonah declared to Nineveh, yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. See, the immediate understanding of that word overthrown is judgment, but the word literally means to turn upside down, and God indeed overturned Nineveh, not in judgment, but by flipping them onto their faces in repentance. And now God wants to do some overturning, not only of, of the Ninevites, but of Jonah's own heart and life. And so I'd like us to consider thirdly and finally Jonah's discipleship concerning Nineveh. Not only his disgust for Nineveh, his distance from Nineveh, but his discipleship concerning Nineveh. Let's pick up in verse 7. It says, but when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry. I'm angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow which came into being in night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? To begin this overturning work in Jonah's heart, God starts with uprooting Jonah's shade tree. See, God will do that sometimes. Sometimes he'll strip away our comforts and our idols to get our attention. 
The passage says that the Lord appointed a worm to attack the plant, and and the plant soon died. And once the tree had died, Jonah was exposed to the elements. The sun began to beat down on him, and he began to lament and gripe. Jonah is now in a place ripe for the Lord's rebuke. He He has been prepared for the Lord to teach him a few things. God says to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? Jonah thinks he does well. He thinks he has just cause for complaint. God quickly sets him in his place. The wording in this section is fascinating. Notice notice with me that it doesn't say that Jonah pitied himself because the plant died. Now that's clearly the case, right? Jonah is feeling awful sorry for himself. But it doesn't say that. It says something more. God says to Jonah, you pity the plant. He doesn't say you pity yourself because the plant died. He says you pity the plant. And what he's also saying, what's implied is you don't pity the Ninevites. In fact, you're angry at me for taking pity on them and showing them mercy. God is making a radical point with Jonah here. He's saying, Jonah, you have more empathy. You have more compassion for a plant which does not have a soul than you do for the 120,000 people who are in the crosshairs of my judgment. He cared more about a plant that perished than the people of Nineveh who were about to perish by God's judgment. And God calls him to the carpet for it. God says to Jonah, you're upset about a plant. You pity a plant. A plant? A plant that is not yours. You didn't put it in the ground. You didn't water it. You didn't give sun for it. And yet you feel pity for it. But you're angry that I have pity for Nineveh, a city of people which I did plant, people whom I did create, who were fashioned in my very image, who do not know their right hand from their left hand. In other words, Jonah, a people who are lost, they're confused, they don't know the way. They're like sheep without a shepherd. And they need a shepherd to show them the way. And if Jonah's paying close attention, that language should ring a bell. Isn't that how God described Israel over and over again in the Old Testament? That's exactly how God dealt with Israel. One place we find this is in Psalm 78, where the psalmist recounts over and over and over again how Israel walked away from the Lord, turned from him, forsook the covenant. And yet, verse 52 of Psalm 78 says, he led out his people like sheep and guided them in the wilderness like a flock. God had been the good shepherd to Israel. See, up until this moment, Jonah's fundamental problem was that he could not identify with the Ninevites. He thought he was different. He was in a Another category above them. But what God's trying to reveal to Jonah is, Jonah, you are just like Nineveh. As one poet propaganda has put it, there's the problem. Them. There is no them. There is us. It's you. It's me. We're the city. We're the culture. We're the problem. Jonah and Nineveh were the same. Both 
sinners in need of the mercy of God. And the church, I can be transparent for a second. I believe that one of the biggest reasons why the church is struggling to reach the culture in America right now, while we are struggling to remain relevant to society right now, is because there is a, a pervasive spirit of Jonah in our churches where we somehow believe that we're better or categorically different than the people we live among. Church, we are Nineveh. We are the worst parts of our city. Isn't that the gospel? That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. There's only two categories of people in the scripture that matter. There's Jesus and there's everybody else. That's it. We're all sinners. We're all broken, all evil, twisted, and in need of grace. And the good news in the story of Jonah, the good news from from Genesis to Revelation, is that no matter how messed up we are, and let's be clear, the Ninevites were messed up, but so was Jonah. No matter how messed up we are, the Lord is a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. He created us, he loves us, and he sees us in our confusion. That we do not know our right hand from our left. And God's impulse is to show mercy. As Ray Ortland has said, the Bible does not say that God is wrathful. He has to be provoked to wrath. But the Bible does say that God is love. And God's impulse is to send a good shepherd to lead us in the way. The Gospel of Matthew records for us that during Jesus' earthly ministry, when Jesus saw the crowds of people, he was moved with compassion. Why? Because he saw them as sheep without a shepherd. Jesus would later stand up and declare, I am the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. See, God sent Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, to save us from our sins and to show us the way. And what we see in Jesus Christ is the foil of Jonah. Jonah was a sinful man who should have identified with the Ninevites, but in his self-righteousness did not. But Jesus was the sinless and righteous Son of God who is categorically different than us, but who nonetheless humbled himself in order to identify with us. Jonah was disgusted with the Ninevites' repentance, but Jesus declares there is great joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. Jonah was he, he distanced himself from Nineveh's plight and took shelter outside the city. But, but the Apostle John tells us that Jesus took on flesh and, and sheltered among us. I like how propaganda, again, puts it. He says our Savior, he wasn't a commuter. He moved in and could speak immigrant. The language of the broken, like the system in their English. The Savior moved in. He walked the streets of your soul and read your graffiti. Jesus is the better Jonah, who was swallowed up, not by a fish, but by death. But just like the fish couldn't hold Jonah down, the grave couldn't hold Jesus Christ down. And he rose on the third day, and Jesus lives so that God can extend mercy to all who will repent of their sins and receive him as Savior and Lord. First, I'm sorry, John 1 and 12 says, As many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, all those who believed on his name. See, through Jesus, God will receive racist prophets like Jonah into his kingdom. Through Jesus, he'll receive 
reputable sinners like the Ninevites. Through Jesus, he will receive all who will turn from their sins and trust in him. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we marvel at your kindness. You truly are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. God, we thank you for your son, Jesus, who entered into our plight, who suffered for our sins, who rose from the dead and who bids us come and follow me and be my disciple. Thank you, God, that you receive into your family all who believe on your son, no matter our past sins, no matter our present prejudices. You receive us through Jesus. God, grant that we would trust in Christ today. And Lord, we also pray that that where there is disgust in our heart toward others, that you would remind us that we are better than no one. That our sin is disgusting and yet you love us. You sent Christ to die for us. Help us to see ourselves and others through the lens of the gospel. Lord, where our hearts are cold and distant to the problems surrounding us, would you lead us to empathy and love? Just as you took on flesh and you walked among sinners and cleansed lepers and healed the lame, Lord, lead us toward incarnational ministry. Father, may our hearts become more and more like Christ's who looked upon the crowds with compassion. And finally, God, we ask that as you sent revival to Nineveh, God, we pray that you would send it to Birmingham. And Lord, may it come even as we, Emmanuel Church, repent of our sins and heed your word. Lord, it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.